And I think it's really important to have podcasts like this to educate maybe some younger people who uh, weren't around to see people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg denied um, jobs in law firms because she was a woman or clerkships on the Supreme Court because she was a woman. I mean, they said so out loud in those days. And so uh, we live in a different world because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think that when um, my generation was coming up through law school, we were very selfish about careers that would be lucrative and uh, making a name for ourselves and doing things um, you know, for, for ourselves to, to build a life. And what I see young people uh, today are so interested in making their communities and their worlds a better place. I, I find it really inspiring. People really care about, and it may be because they've grown up in this time that where they've seen things that are so divisive and they just aren't going to stand for it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Powering Up, our cross-generational, cross-cultural conversation about leadership, power, gender, and social justice. I'm Ann Doyle. And I'm Dana Harvey. I'm excited to be your new co-host, Ann, as Powering Up begins its third season. Yep. Here, we will be amplifying the voices of women who are making a difference. And we are privileged to have with us today a Michigan leader who has become an important and respected national voice who is most definitely making a difference. Barbara McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Previously, she was chosen by President Barack Obama as the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, which includes Detroit. And Barbara was the first woman to hold that powerful, important position, where she oversaw cases involving public corruption, including sending former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick to federal prison, as well as terrorism, corporate fraud, civil rights, and many, many others, Dana. Yeah, exactly. And chances are you've seen her providing legal analysis on NBC News and MSNBC and read her commentaries in USA Today or heard her interviewed on National Public Radio. Welcome, Barbara. Thanks very much, Dana. Thank you, Anne. Glad to be here with you. Well, you know, we are recording this episode on Sunday, September 27th, uh, a little more than a week after Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg left us. And, you know, there has been a tremendous amount of coverage about the, the impact her lifetime of work has had on the legal rights of women in this country. But Barbara, what, what do you want our listeners to know about her legacy? I think it's important for people to understand what life was like before Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg compared to what it is like now. And I think sometimes younger women, even women of my generation, 55, um, maybe don't appreciate all that she did for us. You know, I happen to have been born at a time when I was very fortunate uh, to come of age in the, the 80s, 90s, when many of these barriers had been broken down. But uh, Justice Ginsburg is the one who did them, not only as a justice, but as a lawyer. Uh, she was uh, running the Women's Law Project for the ACLU in the 1970s and brought a number of cases that uh, fought discrimination against men and women you know, she saw equality, gender equality as something that could benefit not just women, but all genders. And so she was really strategic because at the time, so many men thought that these laws that favored women uh, were there to put women on a pedestal and take care of women who maybe lack sophistication and the ability to do jobs. But what she famously said is, I don't see it as a pedestal, but as a cage. And yeah. so she was very strategic in selecting her plaintiffs as men to challenge laws that denied benefits to men, that favored women, because it was based on assumptions 
that women could not be the primary breadwinner or that women lack sophistication financially. So things like military benefits for spouses when the woman was in the military and the husband was the spouse or survivor benefits under social security when the man was the widower and the, the wife was the, was the uh, a person who had died. And so by dismantling all of these things systematically, she ultimately was able to get the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment to be recognized for cases of gender discrimination. And so forevermore, whenever there is a law that discriminates based on gender, there has to be, it has to pass heightened scrutiny. And from time to time, there are, there are reasons. She said we should inherit the, 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 we should celebrate the inherent differences between the sexes, but we should not manufacture them arbitrarily based on stereotypes. Um, and so, you know, since the 1970s, we've had, we've seen those barriers drop uh, again and again and again but they wouldn't have happened on their own. And so people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and others who fought for them, you know, I know I am the beneficiary of, yeah. and I think it's really important to have podcasts like this to educate maybe some younger people who uh, weren't around to see people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg denied um, jobs in law firms because she was a woman or clerkships on the Supreme Court because she was a woman. I mean, they said so out loud in those days. And so uh, we live in a different world because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, I'm glad you made that point that she could not get a job graduating from law school uh, because they wouldn't hire women, which is why she really ended up at the ACLU. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad she, she took that on. You know, I think for many people, it could be discouraging and you could say, um, uh, there's no room in this profession for me um, or I, I should find a way to uh, fit into a man's world. And instead, she took it on, uh, on herself to change the world. Um, there are a few people in history we can say that about you know, Thurgood Marshall with respect to race, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg with respect to gender. And I find both of those figures really inspiring that they found ways to use the law as a tool to change it. You know, that's an incredible point that, that she absolutely changed the world. And I think you, you explained many of the ways that she's done that. But, you know, at this very moment, there are a lot of us who understand that, who are panicked about um, the fact that, um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg isn't even buried yet. And President Trump has now announced his nominee for the Supreme Court that uh, they want to um, ram through. And, and I want to use some of the words that you, you wrote in a, in a national article you just released. Until now, one of the ways to describe extreme conservatives uh, has been to call them a right of Attila the Hun. Amy Coney Barrett is even further along the spectrum than that. Uh, tell us your understanding of her, um, I guess, legal history. Yeah, and so the point I make in the article is that she is actually right of, of Antonin Scalia, who was her mentor and boss. You know, Justice Scalia was a very conservative Supreme Court justice who died in 2016. She had served as a law clerk for Justice Scalia, but she has written some things to suggest that she is even more conservative than Justice Scalia. Uh, you know, he follows this originalist philosophy of, of uh, judicial interpretation that we should go back and imagine what it was the framers of the Constitution had in mind when they wrote uh, the, uh, provisions of the Constitution. Um, and uh, we should nonetheless also follow this concept called stare decisis, which means we follow case precedent. If there's a case on the books, uh, justices and judges are obliged to follow that. And I think the big one that all of us are concerned about when it comes to judge a perhaps potential Justice Amy Coney Barrett, of course, is Roe versus Wade. Uh, but she has written that uh, she would not be so wedded to stare decisis or 
following case precedent, that it's more important to follow that originalist uh, intent. And so she, uh, she said that he was a, a faint-hearted originalist, uh, suggesting that she herself uh, is not so faint-hearted and that she would tolerate that such mistakes in an otherwise uh, brilliant career. And so uh, I think she frames herself as someone who is right of Justice Scalia and frames herself as someone who is more willing to overrule precedent when she thinks that is the right thing to do. And so that, that concerns me about some of the case law that is on the books, like Roe versus Wade. I was actually going to lead into that question, Barbara, just thinking about um, the impact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had and what we might anticipate with this new um, nominee. If you could just talk about the, the loss of what Ruth Bader Ginsburg not being a justice any longer and what we might have to be concerned about um, with Trump's new um, nominee. Well, she certainly appears based on her record uh, on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals where she has been a judge for the first two years and what she has written in her scholarship as a law professor at Notre Dame Law School that she will be a solidly conservative vote. Justice Ginsburg, of course, was a solidly liberal vote. And I don't think, uh, I am not so cynical as to think that all justices come along and vote simply in favor of the political party that nominated them to the court. But no doubt, when a president names a justice to the court, they are looking for someone who shares their worldview. And Justice Ginsburg had a worldview that was very opposed to discrimination, uh, that was very much in favor of equality, not only gender equality, but race equality and um, marriage equality and a number of things along those lines. Um, and I think that uh, Judge Barrett, if she is confirmed to the court, uh, will reflect the worldview of the Republican Party and conservatives. And so things that are coming along the pike, like reviews of the Affordable Care Act, uh, or, you know, it seems that every term there is some challenge attempting to chip away at uh, reproductive rights. Um, she has written strongly in favor of gun rights, suggesting that it is unconstitutional to prohibit even felons from possessing firearms, which again is a position that Justice Scalia did not share. Uh, I think as those cases come over the horizon, you know, the Supreme Court decide some very important cases that shape American life, you can expect a consistently conservative vote uh, from her, whereas in the past, you could expect a consistently liberal vote from Justice Ginsburg. That's certainly not without exception. You joined other women law enforcement officials uh, who called themselves uh, hashtag sisters in law to speak out about the president's use of federal agents uh, against protesters in Portland and um, in Washington, D.C., we've seen that, and, and his uh, announced intention to dominate the streets. Um, what are your concerns about that from a legal point of view? Well, first, I think that violence and, um, is not the same thing as protest. Peaceful protest is a, a very powerful American tradition that we want to defend and support. Um, violence is not. And so when people begin to destroy property and hurt others, uh, there is a role for police to put an end to that. And in fact, police have a role in protecting protesters uh, and being present to make sure that they're not victimized by counter protesters who engage in violence. But President Trump um, talked to the nation's governors and talked to them about dominating the streets and having a big show of force of police that only elevated tensions in, in Portland. We saw the state's governor and the city's mayor asking the federal agents to please leave because they were escalating tensions there. Uh, we saw federal agents who showed up to defend federal property 
which is perfectly legitimate to be around the federal courthouse and make sure people weren't destroying property or, or vandalizing. That's perfectly appropriate. But then they left their post uh, and delved out into the community to arrest people. And they even admitted without probable cause, uh, bringing them into custody just to question them, which is not permissible. And so I think they were using Homeland Security agents in a way that was inappropriate, overreach, excessive. And I think when you do that, it undermines the ability of all law enforcement to be effective in that situation because uh, it makes it an us versus them situation and uh, it escalates tensions. What you need to be effective in law enforcement is officers who bring calm to chaos, who aren't there to dominate the streets, but to de-escalate tensions. And the only way you can be effective and have the respect uh, to um, have people comply with the law is if people trust those who are uh, enforcing the law. And I think that the message that they sent there was the exact opposite message that you want to have. So um, I, I think that President Trump has deliberately used law enforcement as a way to drive a wedge to, between people, to divide people. Um, and that's not, not what leadership to me is all about. Leadership is about bringing people together to unify and to bring calm to chaos. Agreed. Absolutely. And I also know, we also know, as we've seen over and over, how um, the protests are actually continuing on in Kentucky and Louisville as well regarding Breonna Taylor. Um, the demonstrations following her death, um, as well as the uh, Attorney General's statements that most recently came out in terms of what uh, the outcome of that investigation is going to be. Um, again, just thinking about President Trump's rule of law and whether or not that law actually results in justice, what are your thoughts on uh, Attorney um, Cameron's most recent announcement on how that law was applied to Breonna Taylor's um, investigation, the investigation of her death? Yeah, that's a situation where it, it, it gives this feel of great injustice for Breonna Taylor. I think it's because most of us look at a situation like that from the perspective of the victim. You know, we can all imagine how terrifying it must have been to be Breonna Taylor, awakened in the middle of the night. Uh, you've done absolutely nothing wrong. You are living a, uh, a life contributing to the good of society as an emergency medical technician. And someone comes bursting through your door in the middle of the night with guns blazing, knocking down the door, um, shouting, and, uh, and then shooting you dead with uh, 32 bullets, six, six of which strike her. The problem is that the law looks at that incident from the perspective of the police officer. And what that says is a police officer has a valid warrant, knocks and announces presence, and when he enters, someone fires shots at them. At that moment, the law looks only at the decision the officer makes at that moment and says that it is justified and reasonable self-defense to fire back. Um, I think it is both correct under the law and horrifying as uh, a citizen of the United States. I can understand people's outrage by that. Um, I think that it, 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 it demonstrates how the law is stacked in favor of police officers. I also think it does not account for the entire chain of events that led up to that moment. Uh, you know, wh why on earth are these officers executing a search warrant after midnight? There's, yeah. there's no good reason yeah. to do it. I will tell you, when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, the presumption was that you do it during daylight hours. Usually the warrant would say so, that you should do it during daylight hours. And as a matter of best practices, we always did it, you know, at like 7 a.m. You want to do it first thing in the morning. You have all day to, to be there. It takes a long time to execute a search warrant. You're going to be there all day. You know, 
looking, gathering evidence and tagging it and all of those things. And you also want to get the person before they've left for the day. You want to get them at a time when they might not react very defensively. Uh, you know, when you create that very frightening situation in the dark with a break-in, it's a very foreseeable consequence that people are going to think you're an armed intruder. Now, they say they, they announce themselves as police. Her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, said he did not hear them say police. I think both could be telling the truth. Uh, when you're sound asleep and some, you hear someone pounding on your door, you may not discern exactly what it is they're saying. Um, and, you know, this was not, uh, it does not strike me as a life or death case. You know, sometimes there are exigent circumstances that require execution of a search warrant in the middle of the night. If you had found the Boston Marathon bombers in the middle of the night, you would have busted down their door. But this sounds like a garden variety drug case. All of those things suggest to me that there are things the police could have done better. But the law, again, is really stacked in favor of police officers. It says things like, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the reasonable officer on the scene. Um, you have to account for the fact that it's a tense situation, that the facts are evolving rapidly, and we cannot look at it with a 2020 vision of hindsight. We have to think about it from that momentary uh, decision, split-second decision that the officer has to make uh, his choice. That's a policy decision that we've made. It's a decision that's court-created and not statutory-based, but I think it's one that we might want to think about going forward about how we conduct police operations that might be putting our citizens in danger and creating a situation that led to the tragic death of Breonna Taylor. If 2020 has not created enough scenarios that, <laughs> that has offered us a chance to reflect on what we might want to do um, or change, if at all possible, to kind of level these laws so that um, you know, the victims to be could also be considered, I, I, I would agree with that. What is your thinking related to this whole defund the police movement that's going on? Um, do you feel there is a need for us to rethink um, how police departments are um, organized, perhaps, uh, the, the kind of police, how they're trained, and uh, you know, what they are expected to do? Yeah, I might frame it differently. I might call it reimagine public safety as opposed to defund the police. I wish they I, would have started there too, Barbara. <laughs> yeah, because I think defund the police is... Um, uh, yeah. divisive, and it isn't really what most people mean, I think. I mean, right. I think there are some who would say, I would defund the police altogether. But I think in a world without police, people like the three of us would be eaten alive. So I don't think we want to defund the police. <laughs> I need, I think police yeah. are incredibly valuable in society. And I have many friends who are police officers who I admire very much who are selfless public servants. Um, but I do think that occasionally there are problems that we've seen all around the country with um, unnecessary use of excessive force. force. <clears throat> disproportionately victimizing African-Americans, but not always. Lots of people are victims of uh, excessive force. There's a great example out of Camden, New Jersey that I have uh, uh, focused on a little bit where they had a lot of problems with their police department and they did disband it, the entire police department, but they didn't abolish it. They reformulated it and re-envisioned it as a department of public safety. They talk about a, you know, a police service and not a police force. They uh, fired everybody and you had to reapply for your job and only those who shared the vision of being uh, an organization that protects and serves uh, was able to get a job there. Uh, police un unions, although I'm uh, certainly a product of a union family and believe we need unions to protect workers for things like wage and hour issues, sometimes um, create issues and obstacles to investigations of uh, use of excessive force. And so you have to negotiate union contract provisions that make sure are serving the public and not just uh, in the best interest of the officers. And they did that in, in Camden, New Jersey. 
Um, but also attending to things like mental health. Uh, as a huge percentage of people involved in police situations um, have mental health issues and making sure that you have mental health professionals to deal with those and you're not just coming in and treating everyone like a criminal, but making sure you're attending to people who have mental health issues as well. So there are a lot of ways I think we can reimagine public safety uh, to better serve the public. You know, before we lose you, we want to uh, get a chance to hear uh, a little more about you and, um, and particularly about your leadership journey. Uh, Barbara, uh, uh, give us a sense of maybe when you started to think of yourself as, as a leader with responsibility to raise your voice, um, not simply to, to be a, a high-level skilled professional doing a great job, but to raise your voice beyond that, which you're doing today. Well, I don't know. I suppose becoming a lawyer is, is one way to raise your voice. Um, uh, as a uh, as a child, and like you, I was a big sports fan, and um, I remember at a young age loving sports and discovering that um, how few opportunities there were for women in sports, and that offended me. I also remember as a very young child uh, thinking that uh, you know wouldn't it be exciting to become president of the United States someday, and being told girls can't do that. And um, all of those things really just offended my sense of justice because I had also been told that you, you know, we can do anything we want in America. And so to see any group be denied opportunity uh, offended me at a young age. And I think that I have always wanted to defy stereotypes, uh, becoming involved in sports, becoming involved in the law, which was at one time a predominantly male profession, um, is something that I've done to stand up and speak out against those kinds of uh, discrimination, you know, whether it's against anybody, why would we as a, uh, a nation want to eliminate the talents of anyone based on their race or their gender or um, their sexual orientation? Uh, it's, just, it's just so foolish, but it also is hurtful when you are an American, uh, when you're taught about, you know, all people being created equal, equal justice under law, and then you see large swaths of, of groups, including your own, denied those opportunities. And so I think at a young age, I just thought I'm going to do something about this. Um, and I've been fortunate to live in a time when women have had opportunities to do things. But, you know, I was the first woman to be U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Michigan. That is no, no uh, tribute to me. It is an indictment of the system. I'm glad that that barrier has been broken. But gosh, how many others are still the first this or the first that? And, yeah. um, and yeah. so, you know, when, when Barack Obama became president, I, I, I really cried the moment they put on the TV screen 44th president of the United States because it was one more barrier broken, which means it's a barrier that is, is broken for all of us. You know, so every time a barrier is broken, I think all Americans should celebrate. There are so many more firsts yet to go. So we, we appreciate you taking one of them. Um, and I wanted to just ask you, as you think about what you faced and what you thought about as, as a young person and now being a professor um, at U of M, um, what are you seeing in this next generation of youth? I mean, they were on the forefront of all of these protests around the country, around the world, and they are, they're incredibly um, doing really well at amplifying their voices. What have you observed about uh, Generation Z and, and, and what you anticipate they will be like coming up after the, the rest of us? Dana, they give me great hope because they are very idealistic and they are passionate and they want to fight for a better world. They really care deeply about things like equality. They care about climate change. 
um, and, and they're ready to do it. You know, I think that when um, my generation was coming up through law school, we were very selfish about careers that would be lucrative and uh, making a name for ourselves and doing things, um, you know, for, for ourselves to, to build a life. And what I see young people uh, today are so interested in making their communities and their worlds a better place. I, I find it really inspiring. People really care about, and it may be because they've grown up in this time that where they've seen things that are so divisive and they just aren't going to stand for it. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think that Trumpism has ignited in many people a desire to swing the pendulum back toward a more just society. So I see people very motivated to fight against what they see as unjust immigration laws, um, against police brutality, um, against an indifference to a changing climate, you know, all these wildfires and crazy weather episodes don't go unnoticed. Uh, and so um, I, I think that gives me great hope for the future that students are uh, not only um, passionate about these things, but are educating themselves about how they can be a force for change. And Barbara, we know that you're on Twitter because I follow you. And uh, how can people uh, also follow you if they're interested? Uh, at Barb McQuaid. At Barb McQuaid. Okay, we're going to give you the last word. I'll just say that I think that 2020 has been a year that could be very discouraging between COVID and police brutality and uh, civil unrest and then political power plays that see uh, an appointment of a justice shortly before an election after you know Republicans <laughs> insisted that can't be done in 2016. I think it would be very easy to be to feel hopeless. But um, I think let's use this opportunity to spur action, um, to inspire us to work hard. There are many things that we can do to make our world a more just place. Um, and, and rather than feel hope, hopeless, let's feel hopeful like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, she could have um, gone uh, and taken these acts of discrimination and, and gone home. Instead, she decided to fight back. And um, I hope that we can be inspired in the same way to make our country a more just place. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Barbara McQuaid, for being with us. Uh, keep raising your voice, uh, your respectful, thoughtful, but very courageous voice uh, at this critical moment in our country's history is badly needed. And uh, I know you are living John Lewis's rallying cry of causing good trouble. Thank you, everyone, for being with us. I'm Ann Doyle. And I'm Dana Harvey. Our thanks to Robin Kenny and her Motor City Woman Studio here in Detroit for producing Powering Up. Let's all go. Let's all go. Power, Power up. Power up. Thanks for joining us at Powering Up. We hope you'll subscribe and share us with your network. And Dana and I would love to hear from you through the Powering Up Women Facebook page or at Ann Doyle LDR on Twitter. And I am at Dana Harve on Twitter. And remember, power is the currency for getting things done. Claim yours and put it to work.